Welcome to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast, featuring sermons given at our church and community center located in the Lincoln Estates neighborhood in Gainesville, Florida. If you find these messages beneficial, if you're part of our community, or if you want to help support the services we're providing to Southeast Gainesville, you can text the word GIVE to 352-562-7771 to make tax-deductible donations. Here's this week's message. I'm Mike Rayburn, Pastor Gainesville Vineyard. Thanks so much for tuning into our Sunday live stream service. I'm glad you're here. Glad to be with you today. Got a really special treat for you this morning. But let me get through these announcements first, and then I'll tell you about that. First announcement is communion. Uh, We're going to take communion together at the end of our service this morning. So gather elements, uh, something to eat and something to drink. Whatever you have on hand is fine. We will consecrate those together as the body and blood of Jesus at the conclusion of this service. So have those ready. Uh, Next announcement is our Hunting Magic Eels Zoom study is continuing tonight. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then okay, don't worry about it. But for those of you who are signed up and a part of it, just a reminder, 7 to 8.30 this evening over Zoom. I'll send the link out again. Uh, We're having a really good discussion. It got really deep and fruitful last time especially. I'm looking forward to more tonight. So looking forward to that with y'all. Our bull services are continuing, weather permitting. At 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, we gather outside of the bull underneath the tent and worship in person there. And we're continuing to do the live streams at 10.30 online here. Uh, We're singing the same songs and preaching the same message. And most things are the same. So um, we'd love to have you join us when you're ready. And we'll continue doing this for when you aren't or folks that are just checking us out, which is also really nice too. So um, next announcement is our grocery giveaway has moved to an every other week rotation. So we were doing weekly grocery giveaways for, for many months, but we're not able to get a truck weekly from the food bank now. So there's no grocery giveaway this coming Wednesday. Our next grocery giveaway will be Wednesday week. So volunteers, you get a week off and uh, folks needing groceries. Uh, there are other giveaways that are happening in the area and if you need food, let me know, and I'll put you in touch with folks that are that are uh, providing uh, food this week. Last announcement is giving. There are three ways you can contribute financially to the life of Gainesville Vineyard. I'm going to put those on the screen. One, you can text the word GIVE to the number on the screen. The first time you do that, there's a small setup process. After that, it's very easy. You can also go to our website, GainesvilleVineyard.org, and click on the Give button in the upper right-hand corner and give that way. That's a good place to set up recurring giving if you'd like to do that. Or you can mail a check to the P.O. box that's on the screen as well. All of your donations are tax deductible and go to continue helping us do the work of the church and the work of the community center that we've got going on. Still a lot of stuff happening there. We appreciate your faithfulness and generosity, which makes all of that possible. So, as I said, I've got a special treat for you this morning. Um, We're in this series about tending the nexuses of relationships that form our lives into friendships. Man, I know that's a mouthful, and you're probably tired of hearing me say it, but it's really important. And one of the relationships that's most key to this is our relationship with ourselves. So I asked Karen Fields if she would preach for us this morning on tending that internal relationship towards friendship. And so uh, I've watch this message already and it is powerful i took a full page of notes and i'm sure you will want to do the same if you're the note-taking type um i do want to say this and karen mentions this as well 
if her message stirs up something specific and deep and perhaps troubling in you, uh, I want you to feel free. I want to encourage you to reach out to me. I'm going to put my email address on the screen right now. You can reach out to me and uh, I can talk to you. Or I can put you in touch with Karen. She also mentions there are hotlines that you can uh, reach out to. And those numbers are going to appear at the end of the service in the in the post-service announcements. Those will be up there as well. So if you need those resources, uh, those will come up then. And I say all that because this is a very powerful message that Karen preaches for us this morning. And I want to encourage everyone to listen close and pay attention because this is central to what we've been talking about ever since last fall. So here's Karen. Hello, good morning, Vineyard family and anyone else who might be joining us via technology and the internet. My name is Karen Fields and I am delighted and honored to be giving the message this morning. A little bit about me as we start. My, my name is Karen, as I said, and I'm a therapist and a clinical director at a private practice here in Gainesville, Florida called LCS. I also am a professor at UF and I'm the founder of the Enneagram Dignity Project, which is a group that meets and does events regarding personality and the Enneagram. And I just want to be upfront. I want to be honest. Everything in me is fighting this voice in my head that's saying, that's saying, stay in your wheelhouse. You are not a pastor. You can only talk about your area of expertise, which is mental health or wellness or personality or coping skills. And the reason that message is playing in my head so prominently is because it's the message I've received my whole adult life in the church. As a woman in evangelical Christian spaces, I never saw models of women delivering a message from God, except to children or other women. I was sought out often as I moved forward with my professional development, I would be sought out for my opinion around clinical issues, parishioners who were struggling with mental health, but that would be the end. Um, when it moved into any kind of theological perspective, then it wasn't my voice that was called upon. It was um, men in my life or, or not in my life. So I didn't think that my perspective theologically mattered very much to anybody. If I even dared to share more than I had agreed upon, the topic that was presented to me, I would feel this anxiety rise up in me as I looked around. Um, I'm very acutely aware of relational energy in the room and emotional energy. And so I'll pay attention and notice who's getting uncomfortable, who's squirming, who's breathing deeply or not breathing at all. And I would feel that energy, the stares, the holding of the breath um, and wait really to find out what happened. Would I be rebuked for saying more than I should have said? Um, would pastors then follow up and walk back parts of my message? That's my reality. And I want to be honest with you about that. Instead of just giving my message and not addressing that this is new for me. And I'm honored to be a part of a congregation that values the voice of women. And I don't take that lightly. So today I have an opportunity to bring my whole self to this message. The therapist, and she'll come out, 
but also the woman, the LGBTQ affirming person and the informal theologian. So here we go. Let's pray. God, fill us in this space with your presence. Remind me that you are with me, that your spirit lives within me and within us. Settle my nerves. I pray that the words that I say will share the truth of who you are and your character, your love and your gentleness and your deep care for all of your children. In Jesus name, amen. So my topic today is called, why are you bent so low, my soul? The God of anguish and healing. And I get that from a verse um, that we're gonna read today actually from Psalm 40, 42. But um, the translation is what I love and I'm using the Pamela Greenberg translation and she really just has a way of getting to the richness of the text. So I'm really excited to read from her. But we're gonna talk about um, mental health and emotional duress and anguish and how hard it is to experience those things anyway as humans, but also this additional layer of struggle sometimes within the church. So our psychology and faith traditions really at odds. In the United States, this is a narrative that I grew up hearing. I don't know for you, but that was something that I heard often. So a recent study published in Social, Psychological, and Personality Science compared data from this, um, this big survey called the World Value Survey that's conducted in um, many countries. And they compared data from the US with data from five other countries, namely Brazil, the Philippines, South America, Sweden, and the Czech Republic. And this study explored the connection specifically between religion and science. So, and, and for this particular context, we'll put psychology in the scientific realm because that's one of the realms that psychology is put in. So in a nutshell, when psychology is viewed as a science, there is immediate skepticism from certain religious groups in America, whereas other countries do not see religion and science as being at odds, which creates more room for acceptance for all types of science including psychology and the study of human behavior. So when it comes to seeing psychology as a science, many other countries are on board and are more open. So what about the people that don't view psychology or therapy or counseling as a science? So some people view this world of mental health as more of a pseudoscience, uh, maybe even pop psychology. And particularly in the American evangelical church, it can be seen as what's called new age, which is kind of this, um, the image that comes up sometimes when you think of that as almost this kind of godless and self-serving um, kind of philosophy. So this can lead to the belief that mental health treatment should really only be geared toward very extreme disorders, not just the everyday life stressors, painful past experiences, or general melancholy and dissatisfaction. Those categories are viewed more as spiritual issues and that are better addressed with clergy or even just between that person and God. 
So any energy toward that kind of meeting people where they are, exploring just the day-to-day life and identity um, feels a little self-indulgent to some people. So therapy then is kind of discouraged in some contexts. So I'm curious, what are some messages you heard growing up about mental health and specifically mental health treatment? Let me name a few that I hear come up with my clients in my office way too often. Number one, pray harder. And we all know prayer can be extremely powerful and miraculous, but this message of pray harder has been so damaging to people who are praying as hard as they possibly can and still don't feel a relief from the thorn in their side. So this message of praying harder elicits this this idea that you're not trying hard enough and you're not trusting God enough and you're not doing the, the tools and the things that Christians are supposed to do. Another message might be, stop thinking about yourself so much. This idea that any work on ourselves is self-indulgent or a waste of time or, um, or selfish can be really damaging. And really, um, there are so many, so much evidence in the Bible and in characters in the Bible and in Jesus himself for the pursuit of self-knowledge and connecting to oneself. Another message you might have heard is that mental health concerns are the result of unrepentant sin in your life. Listen, I'm not going to go down that whole trail of unrepentant sin. We'll save that for Mike for a different sermon. But I will say this, the message that mental health is a sin or is caused by your sin is killing people really. The grace and the love of God is so much more important in those moments. So that message has done a lot of damage. Another message might be, don't talk about it because it will hurt our witness as Christians. And I remember this message even um, in some of the Christian circles I was in, almost like we needed to be above. We needed to be of what is it? What is the expression in the world and not of the world? And so this idea that mental health and anxiety and depression, those were things that were that were of the world and that we needed to be above that somehow, which is such a lie. And it's such a, a confusion for so many people because that's the essence of humanity, that we are very much in this world, dealing with all of the same struggles as everybody else. Another message might be, it's not anyone else's fault, but your own. So this comes up a lot when people come forward, particularly about things like abuse, trauma, um, memories or experiences from early childhood that have stuck with them and had a significant impact on on people, um, even um, foibles or, or issues inside the church that have caused pain and trauma, the message often is that is a personal issue that you need to deal with. That is not an issue for us or the larger church or your family or the bigger systems at play. 
again, the damage there that can be done is that anything that happens to us then is self-inflicted, which creates a ton of shame. Finally, maybe the message is, um, maybe you aren't even a Christian because you're continuing to experience anxiety or depression or symptoms of, of trauma. And this one really gets me mad. As a therapist, as a Christian, I feel furious when I hear this message from a client or somebody sitting across from me or a friend that they question their own salvation because of their mental health issues at different points in their life. That is a really damaging message. So if any of those messages feel true for you, or if any other messages came up as I was asking about that, I just want to invite you to pause, take a breath, and I want to speak some truths over you that the Spirit has laid on my heart. Those messages are lies, and I rebuke those lies in Jesus' name. And I want you to receive that from me, but most importantly, I want you to receive that from God. So these messages have shaped us in so many ways. And um, now, what does that look like for us then? How do we get help? How do we ask for help? What does it even look like to do that? So we're going to take a look at some, some Bible passages that speak so beautifully to this human condition. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what that could look like for us now. So there are two passages I want us to read today, and I'm going to be using Pamela Greenberg's um, translation, and they're both from the Psalms. And I can't think of a better place to go to talk about lament and grief and anguish than the Psalms. So the first one is Psalm 25, and this is a song written by David. A psalm, and I'm going to read the thing. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. So if you can receive that, and um, then I'll break it down, and we'll talk about a couple specific parts. Psalm 25: To you, God, I lift up my soul, my help. It is you I have trusted. Don't let shame overtake me. Don't let my enemies exalt over my ruin. Do the same for all who put their hope in you. Let the betrayers fall to shame instead, those who deceive without cause. Your roads, God, let me know them. Your pathways, help me recognize them from the rest. Lead me down the way of your truth. Teach me its nature. For you are the God of my salvation. It is you whose presence I have hoped for all day. Remember your compassion, O source of wonder, and your kindness, for they have sustained the world from the beginning of time. The error of my youth and my rebellion, try to forget them. Remember me instead by the light of your kindness. Do it, God, because you are good. You are gentle and straightforward, guiding those who stray on the path leading the humble to walk in justice, teaching the willing the holy road. All your paths are kindness and truth to those who uphold the covenant and bear witness to your word. 
For the sake of your name, God, forgive my guilt, for it is overwhelming. Who reveres you? You will teach her the path she should choose. Her soul will sleep content in knowledge of goodness, and her offspring will inherit the earth. Your secret is revealed to those who understand your wonder, the covenant understood by those who teach it with joy. My eyes look towards you continually, my redeemer, for you release my legs from the snare. Turn toward me and awaken your compassion, for I am alone and dejected. That's Psalm 25. So there's a lot of good stuff in that passage, and we can't break down all of it, but I want to highlight certain parts of that chapter that um, I hear and see and, and experience often as a therapist with people who are um, in anguish and, and experiencing intense emotional duress and psychological pain. One of, the, one of the parts that really stood out to me is don't let shame overtake me. Don't let my enemies exalt in my ruin. Shame is such a driver in our lives. There is not a single situation that I've ever had as a, as a therapist that did not on some level involve shame because it is so hard for us to understand and believe that we are worthy. As people, as parents, as siblings, as friends, as children, um, as partners, it is so hard to believe that we're worthy. So this deep desire to not let shame overtake us that, that energy of wanting to be healed, but not knowing how. That is um, a place that I meet people often as a therapist. Another reference that I really, really value. It says, the error of my youth and my rebellion, try to forget them. Remember me instead by the light of your kindness. Do it, God, because you are good. For the sake of your name, God, forgive my guilt, for it is overwhelming. Often, I meet with people who are so consumed by the guilt of their past, their mistakes, um, situations that they were put in, um, situations they put themselves in. It is so hard to forgive ourselves and that has a lot of impact in every way, in our relationships, in our futures, in the way we see ourselves, in the way we interact with others. It's so big. And so that energy around God, forget them, please. I hear people just deeply wanting the loved ones in their life to, to just forget it, to just move on because it's so painful to face. So some of the work there is the healing and facing our mistakes and believing that we can be forgiven. Another part is when um, David says, turn toward me and awaken your compassion for I am alone and dejected. We're gonna talk about this more in a few minutes, but I wanna hold that, that the last line of this chapter, the last message that the psalmist is communicating is, I don't know how to do this. I need you. I need help. I cannot do this. I'm alone and I'm dejected. 
And that's a powerful word. And that's often where we find ourselves in this place of thinking, I don't know how to do this. So that chapter is a great reminder of how um, we have these examples of, of people who have poured out their, their anguish and their questions and their doubts and their pain and their um, instability and their fears to God. And, and that's a big part of this process is facing ourselves and facing our experiences and being open to healing and transformation. Let's read another Psalm and then um, I wanna compare the two and then um, we'll talk about what that looks like for us. So in Psalm 42, um, this one's actually written by an offspring of Korah, which I did a little deep dive into that. Um, and um, this guy named Korah did not seem like a very great guy, but there was redemption in his story because some of his offspring wrote some really great Psalms. So I think that's super cool. So Psalm 42, for the conductor of the eternal symphony, oh, so good. a psalm for understanding. The way a deer longs for streams of water, my soul has longed for you, God of strength. My soul has thirsted for my upholder, for presence of the living God. When will I arrive and behold the light of your face? My weeping was like bread for me, morning and night. When each day they said to me, where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my heart with sadness. How I pass through throngs of people stumbling to the holy temple through cries of joy and thanksgiving, sounds of the celebrating crowd. Why are you bent so low, my soul? And why so in tumult over me? Be hopeful. Wait for God, for in the future, I will again thank you, my upholder, for turning toward me your face and because you are my God. Holy one, my soul is bent low over my plight. I will remind myself of you then from the land of Jordan and think of Hermon from the insignificant Mount of Mitzar. The depths of the ocean call out to the depths with your tunneling voice. Your breakers and waves all crash overhead. By day, you command kindness to accompany me. And by night, your song is at my side. A prayer to the source of my life, a word to the Holy One, rock I hold on to. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I walk in darkness under threat of attack? with words that stab through my bones. My tormentors taunt me. All the day they say, where is your God? Why are you bent so low, my soul? And why so in tumult? Be hopeful, wait for God. For in the future, I will again thank you, my upholder, for turning toward me your face and because you are my God. So much I love about that passage, but a couple points I want to make. The language and the imagery and, and Pamela Greenberg's translation is just so vivid. It's so wonderful. The wording, my weeping was like bread for me, 
morning and night. That is the imagery of that is something that feels so palpable when I or people I love or people I've worked with are just in this place of deep anguish that our tears become our sustenance. It's not a weakness. It is our lifeblood pouring out of us. This, this bread sustaining us through the release of our emotions. And it says, when each day they say to me, where is your God, right? So this almost taunting of the world to this person. Everything outside there seems so good and everything inside here feels so bad. And then, then the psalmist says, these things I remember and pour out my heart with sadness. So in our culture and our society, we see this often, this ability and this desire to express our emotions and to feel the depths of our emotions. We see that as weakness. We see that as being unstable. We see the, um, the pain in that and the stuckness, well, what seems to be stuckness in that as a waste of time or um, self-serving. But right here, this example is that there is something so innately human about the expression of our deepest sadness, not acting like everything's fine when it's not, letting ourselves be and feel exactly what we are feeling and where we are. And that permission in that is something that as Christians, I think we're so often told, don't dwell there. Don't feel that. Don't in indulge that. But so much of that is the richness of this anguish that is just a, a, a byproduct of our humanity. So I love the permission there. Another part says how I pass through throngs of people stumbling to the Holy Temple. I want you to visualize this. And I tried to read it in this way. Have you ever been that person where inside you are just racked with pain and anguish? Maybe you're going through things, external factors and internal factors that are just so debilitating. Nothing feels joyful or hopeful or good. Then you look around and you see the world moving. You see people going about their day. You see people enjoying themselves, going to parties, having a good time. Maybe you scroll social media and you see all these people sharing their best versions of themselves and think that will never be me. I'm so far from that reality. What is wrong with me? Why can't I do that? Why can't I experience the lightheartedness of that? If that feels true for you, receive this connection, this psalmist who gets the plight, who understands that experience. And then that phrase is followed, that, that, that imagery is followed with this, a change of tone. Why are you bent so low, my soul? And why so in tumult over me. This frustration and, and um, hopelessness of just why do I have to be like this? Why am I experiencing this? Talking directly to our, our deepest parts, our soul, our spirit, 
feeling like this lowliness that has overtaken you. Why is that happening to me, right? This just deep anguish and bellowing and, and acknowledgement. And then this phrase right after that says, be hopeful, wait for God. And, you know, as I've really dug into this passage, it was helpful to me because in other translations I've read, I didn't feel and see the cadence of this passage well enough. And it just felt to me like more of a formula, right? So when you're in those places of anguish, just be hopeful, wait for God. And I think that's a message we receive a lot. Just be hopeful, wait for God. But then all of a sudden, I feel like the spirit revealed this whole different way that the psalmist is trying to communicate and the words that that this translation really pulls out it's this acknowledgement that yes i know i know somewhere in me i know and believe that i should have hope i know and believe that i need to wait on god that god has not left me that i am i am still wrapped in god's presence but i don't feel it so to me i read it kind of how I read it to you, it's like this, I know, be hopeful, wait on God. And it's not that it isn't true. It's that all of it can feel true at the same time. So this, again, this permission there that you don't have to have it all together. You don't have to immediately water down your story and spin it into a positive and happy ending because we have lots of examples of not so happy endings in scripture and in Jesus's life and in our own lives. But that's not the, the guarantee or the goal, but there is a higher um, order to things and there is something comforting about that. And at the same time, we don't feel it. And when we don't feel it, it's very, very lonely. So I love that. And I appreciate that permission too. So when we read through these passages, to me, there's just a deep stirring, a stirring of the spirit and a stirring of this kind of inner world. And I think this is where um, the, the confusion around, can we give space for our inner world? Is that allowed as Christians? And um, we read this and think, of course, this is everywhere in scripture. This is any, any experience that we have with the divine, it's this deep stirring that we experience. And one thing I really want to point out about these two passages is this turmoil and this anguish, it comes both internally, right? We have our own inner worlds and we experience turmoil um, in our emotions, in our moods, in our fears, but it's also impacted by our external factors. And again, that's something that we too often minimize, that, that some of the anguish we're going through is not just an internal process, it's also often external. Maybe it is um, really painful and, and sad and tragic life events. Maybe it's experiencing intense conflict with someone we love. Maybe it's systemic racism or sexism or homophobia that we are experiencing every day and it wears on us. And so it's not just an inner situation, but all of our outer situations affect our inner world. 
And, and both of these Psalms express that so beautifully that it's both an inner anguish and this sense of oppression, like something going on outside of ourselves that is really um, weighing on us or pushing us down. And for some people that is even more um, present and we need to be aware of that and honor that. But for all of us, we experience that external turmoil. So one thing I want to point out, and then we'll talk about what this looks like for us, is these two passages end differently. And both endings make sense, and both endings are okay. Psalm 25 ends with this verse, turn toward me and awaken your compassion, for I am alone and dejected. It is the psalmist saying, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. So you got something, I'll take it. And I hear that in my therapy office a lot. Sometimes we are left so desperate that we have no room for hope. And sometimes as a therapist, I can hold on to some hope for my clients until they can muster up their own. Sometimes as friends, we can do that for the people we love in our lives. And God is constantly doing that for us, holding us and holding our hope and turning their face with compassion toward us. So the other verse in Psalm 42 ends like this. For in the future, I will again thank you, my upholder, for turning toward me your face, and because you are my God. This passage, although also extremely heavy and full of anguish, ends with a bit of a promise and a bit of a hope. I know that you're there, God, and I, I have enough in me to believe it. And this is also a place that I find people a lot. And, and this is the, the secret here. Our fear sometimes is that if we express all of the darkness and the heavy and the hard and the pain that we're only gonna get stuck there. And sometimes it feels that way, but sometimes by sharing what is true and real in our own experiences, that is actually the doorway toward hope. Because being validated in our own existence and our own experience is a powerful tool. It's a powerful mechanism for change and transformation and healing. So when we give room to bend low our souls, as the verse said that I love, we actually give ourselves room to hold on to greater hope. So either place we find ourselves, God's there. And either place we find ourselves, there's room to explore and to know and to understand. So what does that mean for us? Well, I'm a therapist, so um, I'm gonna be blunt. Sometimes we need help. Plain and simple, sometimes we need help. And you know, therapy can be described sometimes as self-indulgent. And you know, I get it in some ways. 
Um, and sometimes it can feel that way, but really at its core, therapy is a process of knowing oneself. And there's some really powerful things about going through a process intentionally to know yourself. And it doesn't only happen in therapy. It might happen through deliberate and intentional dialogues with close friends or a pastor or um, in your prayer life. How often do we think, oh, I'm so stuck here. And then we pray about it or we journal about it or we talk through it with friends and realize that we actually have um, grown and, and understanding of ourselves through just facing things. So it can happen in many ways, but it might be through counseling or therapy or external support. So this process of knowing oneself, it's a fluid process of learning and unlearning, expanding, contracting, solidifying and loosening all at the same time. And this is the thing about self-knowledge. Self-knowledge in and of itself can lead to rigidity of values and beliefs if your knowledge is only occurring in your mind. Hear me on that. Self-knowledge can actually lead to more rigidity of values and beliefs if the knowledge only occurs in your mind. And the same is true in therapy. If you're only focusing on your own mental ideology and talking through it and running through it as a way of self-knowledge, instead of opening up to the nuance and complexity of your own life and who you are, um, then you're going to get stuck. You're going to get more rigid and more contracted. And that's not the purpose of self-growth. So the key then is to let self-knowledge overlap in our mind, our heart, and our body or spirit. And so God is all in that, right? There's so many examples of that, that yes, we need to know, but we also need to experience it and we need to feel it. So that's one of the advantages of therapy is really trying to understand all of these parts to ourselves. So with self-knowledge and self-awareness, it actually brings us to a crossroads that I want to highlight. And this might be something that has happened to some of you. When we have a heightened awareness of ourself and we don't know what to do with it, it actually can lead to more judgment, more um, criticism of self and, and, a, and a deeper fear and insecurity around our worth. So instead of judgment, we have to really intentionally choose compassion. And this is what leads to empathy and an increase in self-esteem, but also an increase in connection and understanding for others. So um, if we don't move to a place of self-compassion and self-acceptance, then it actually can have the opposite effect. And instead of transforming us, it can lead to more stuckness and discouragement. So how do we get self-compassion? What does that even look like? So it's crucial, crucial, crucial that we have a perspective and a mindset of dignity. And God has a ton to say about dignity. It's crucial that we as humans believe that we are inherently worthy and valuable. And this is where for all of those skeptics of psychotherapy or, or psychological thought, this is where I confront them because some of the old school 
therapeutic interventions and theories were um, not necessarily my cup of tea. Um, and maybe we're a bit more driven toward um, the therapist being the, the expert and the lowly client having all of these issues. And there was an imbalance in some ways of dignity and worth, but that is not what it's about at its core. A huge tenet of most effective psychotherapy theories and interventions is that worth and dignity of all people is paramount. So some theories call this unconditional positive regard, which is like you are worthy no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from. Other more postmodern theories um, kind of more attest to that no one is greater or lesser than anyone else. We're all just kind of on a journey and we intersect with each other in meaningful ways. So this idea of dignity and worth is a huge point towards self-compassion and understanding. So how do we cultivate self-compassion? So I'm gonna give you three steps, um, very, very general. And um, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you what to do with that. So the step one is to acknowledge our humanity. And this is where we can revisit the Psalms because the Psalms did this for us too. Acknowledging our humanity is crucial. And the irony is in some ways, that's the part that we've forgotten. That's the part that the, the, the church sometimes doesn't want us to do. We're human, we're flawed, we're a mess sometimes, and we're human, and we're all in this. The second step is to acknowledge the humanity in others. And this is really important, that if we cannot acknowledge our own humanity, then in some ways we cannot acknowledge fully the humanity of other people. And that is a huge component of Jesus's message, that we are all worthy, that your neighbor is worthy, that a stranger is worthy, that a foreigner is worthy, that an outcast is worthy. We have to believe that about ourselves so that we can believe that about other people. And the third step is that we have to actively remind ourselves that we are worthy and valuable. So this is something that comes up in therapy, helping people understand their worth. This is also something that we can do as Christians in many different practices, through reading through the Psalms and the scriptures, through prayer, through connection with other people, through encouragement, um, reminders that we can tell ourselves of God's love for us that we are worthy. So here's the thing. This is the gospel message. So for all those people who say that this is counterintuitive, that self-knowledge and self-growth and, and transformation is self-indulgent and is not in line with the gospel, I challenge you. I challenge you here because your worthiness is paramount to the gospel and it is paramount to your healing and your growth. So hear me, this is the gospel. You are worthy. You are beloved. You are valuable. You are made in the creator's image, all of you, every part. No part of you 
is separate from God. No part of you is a mistake. No part of you is irredeemable. God loves you. God loves you. I can't say those words to my clients, not usually, but I can share this gospel message through meeting them where they are, promoting their dignity and worth, and reminding them that they have what they need inside of them for healing. And for those who don't identify with a higher power or a creator, they might not even know what it is <laughs> that is driving that. But for me, in my view, God is everywhere. There's no place that we can go where God is not with us. Self-disclosure, I'm not perfect. I'm a therapist and it's difficult for me sometimes to show my own struggles and my own humanity with other people. But it's so important that we do it because one, likely other people are struggling too. So it's comforting to know that we're not alone. Two, it creates disconnection if we are not honest about who we are and where we are. Putting on a mask that everything is fine is not moving people toward Jesus. It's making people feel further away from this image of a God who lets some people be perfect and other people be broken and struggling and hurting. So our humanity is what binds us. If you need help, if you need support, please seek it. Please share it. Please tell someone. If you need assistance in finding support, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to Mike or other people on staff or connected to Vineyard. You can reach out to friends. You can um, reach out to hotlines. I'll provide a list of some numbers too. If you need help, please seek it because it's not weakness, it's humanity. And we've all got it. Thank you for sharing this space with me. It's been an honor. Thank you, Karen, for sharing such a powerful message with us this morning. Let's take communion. Uh, there, there were many things that Karen preached this morning that stood out to me, but the two I want us to focus on uh, for communion are these statements that she made to us that you are worthy and you are beloved. You know, many of you went through the Life of the Beloved book with us with by Henry Nouwen uh, earlier this year, and that was very moving. It's really important that we sow deep into our hearts that we are the beloved, that we are worthy. And so as we take communion this morning, that's what I want us to say. So grab what morsel of food you have on hand. And as we hold this together, this becomes the body of Jesus. So here's what I want you to say with me as we take the body. This is the body of Jesus. And say it just like this. I am worthy. Because you are worthy to receive 
the body of Jesus. You are worthy to, to partake, to eat of his body. So this is the body of Jesus. I am worthy. Take your cup. And as we hold our cups together, this becomes the blood of Jesus. As I've said many times, this is the cup of love. It's called that historically in the church for, for thousands of years. But drinking this cup, we acknowledge that we are the beloved. So say this with me. This is the blood of Jesus. I am beloved. Amen. I want to encourage you one more time. If this message this morning, if this service has stirred things up in your soul, in your heart, please reach out to me. Uh, the, the hotline numbers will be on the screen here in a minute as well. But if you need help, ask for help because it's here for you. I'm going to pray and then we'll be dismissed. Jesus, thank you so much that you have created us and you have made us worthy. You have made us in your image, in your likeness. And you have made us your beloved. We are your beloved. I pray everyone who hears this message, whether they're part of our congregation or just cruising by and checking us out, will hear and receive this message that they are worthy and that they are beloved. That each of us is worthy. That each of us is beloved. So those truths deep into our souls. Jesus, please. Amen. Sisters and brothers, I love you. And I'll be back next week with another service. And I hope to see you in person uh, or online soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gainesville Vineyard Podcast. For more information about our church and community center, including our food pantry, life skills training, legal aid, after-school and sports programs, and international missions, and how to contact us, visit GainesvilleVineyard.org or find us on Facebook. Our page name is GN Vineyard. We also have original worship songs available on iTunes. Just search for Gainesville Vineyard. You can support the work we're doing by texting the word GIVE to 352-562-7771. All donations are tax-deductible. We appreciate you listening to this message and pray the Spirit speaks directly to you through something you've heard today. God bless.